0: Mormon Discussions, in its lineup of great podcasts, is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions plural with an S on the end, .org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive.
1: Mormon, Mormon Discussion and its lineup of great programs. programs,
0: helping you navigate Mormonism one episode. At a time. And now, onto what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to sit down with you today. I, I may end up using this episode on the mythical Jesus as well, because I think the conversation applies in both arenas. But today I want to talk about we, we as in community. We as in a tribe. And, and I hope to pool several things kind of running around in my brain. I sometimes feel like a billiard table just after somebody does the original shot to, to break up the, the billiard balls. Where everything's going everywhere and you're watching to see which pockets and which balls go where. And I feel that kind of excitement... Um and also worry that maybe I won't be able to get across some of these things that I'm thinking about. I have spent the last three, four, five years diving deep into ideas around consciousness and development. Uh, I just got done reading Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth, and I'm right in the middle of listening to Oprah Winfrey's podcast Uh, Super Soul Conversations, where she interviews Eckhart Tolle over the course of 10 episodes, about an hour each, each one covering a chapter of his book. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, Please go read it. But it's, it's the same conceptual space as, say, The Four Agreements, which is an incredible book. Or Richard Rohr in some of his conversations. Or Ken Wilber in Spiral Dynamics. Like all of these voices are pushing us to take on a new awareness to wake up and to be conscious of our consciousness. And to be aware of our awareness. And to move out of lower stages of development and to move into something else. And today I want to talk a little bit about some of those things. Another book, by the way, is Sapiens. I think it's Yuval Harari is the author of that. I hope I'm saying that right. And that's another incredible book. And and my suggestion would be to read all these things as if they are one course. To read all these things as if they are all fingers pointing to the same moon. And when you sense that, when you when you grasp that, something I think magical happens in it and I feel like it's happening in my life and so with that here let's uh let's jump into this when I was born as a child as a baby born to two wonderful parents really was my childhood was amazing my mom and my dad got married young my mom got pregnant before my dad and mom got married and and they've had their struggles through their life but they're still married and And my childhood was just amazing. I had one brother, four years apart, and I was the oldest. And I'm lucky, just lucky to have been in the family that I was in. I wouldn't change anything about my growing up. My growing up was just incredible. I had access to friends. I had access to cousins and and aunts and uncles. My parents loved me to death. And our family did things our family, we had discipline in our home, but there was also lots of love and care, and, uh, and I wouldn't trade that for the world. But when I was born as a baby, I didn't know all that. I didn't know what was to come. I was, I was in 100% in egocentricity. All I wanted to do was have my diaper changed and, and be fed, and when I cried, I wanted to be soothed, and anybody else's needs did not matter. I think because we understand a little bit that babies are comforted by the heartbeat of their mother or that babies uh, soon begin to recognize the difference of their their parents versus others around them. And so we, we recognize that on some level, even in egocentricity, there's still some level of community. There's still some level of knowing others and having some sense of attachment, but that takes a little while. And as I start off in egocentricity, I don't really care about a tribe. I don't care about my people. I don't care about my family. I just want to be taken care of. But as I point out, at some point, that begins to shift. And suddenly, I become we. We. And I, and I think about why humans need to be we And so I go to the book Sapiens and I think about the idea that human beings as individuals, in other words, a cheetah on its own as an adult can survive in the rough and tumble world. A cheetah can go on hunts and it can provide for itself at least well enough that evolution has deemed the cheetah to do that. And other animals seem to hunt in packs. Other animals seem to hunt in groups. And when you look at human beings, human beings on their own for the last million years wouldn't do so well. Humans aren't the fastest, they're not the strongest. What they are is the smartest. And evolution has deemed that for humans to have survived over the last million years, they needed to work in groups, they needed to work in tribes. So, knowing that, my my impetus here would be to push and encourage you to see that the human brain has developed over a million years valuing ethnocentricity. For a million years, humans have needed to get along and to work together with their tribe, which has also caused them to not get along and not work together to see as an enemy other tribes. That we humans have always needed to band together. If you stick a human 200,000 years ago in the landscape of Africa, per se, that human would struggle to survive and almost assuredly would not that we need others around us and that our brain has developed in a way as to want and to desire a tribe, a community, a people. So as I got older, as I was a kid, what I had was family. I knew who my dad was. I knew who my mom was. I knew who my aunts and uncles and my grandmas and my grandpas and my cousins, I knew who they were. I knew who my brother was. And I understood that I was safe with these people these people loved me i knew that those closest to me loved me the most and then those as we move layers away they loved me maybe a little less but they still loved me and i was safe with them now my heart goes out to people and i'm literally like in this moment i'm feeling that little tightness in my chest as i as i say this like i realize That not everybody's situation works the way that evolution designed it to work. I realize out there that fathers and mothers abuse children. I realize out there that aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmas and grandpas abuse children, abuse youth, abuse kids. And so I'm sorry if your situation wasn't standard or your situation wasn't in the realm of what evolution deemed it to be. But I was lucky. I was loved deeply by my mother and my father. I was loved deeply by my grandmas and grandpas and my aunts and uncles and my cousins. In a way that you would say like, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to work. And so it was we. Now there was still I. There was still I that liked to wrestle with my dad on the living room floor. There was still I that liked to watch sports on TV. But even in the eye, there was we because there were others in my family that liked those things. And that's why I grew to like those things. I can remember I was born in 1978. I can remember in the mid 80s, the Cleveland Browns were a good football team. They were consistently in the AFC championship, though they never made it to a Super Bowl. And I can remember my dad screaming at the television set at John Elway, who was a quarterback, who was very mobile. He could move around in the pocket without getting sacked. And my dad would scream at the TV. And I sensed my dad's passion for this team. And now here I am 40 years old. And I share that same passion for my team, the Cleveland Browns. And that alone, liking your sports team is ethnocentricity. And here I am claiming i think to be out of that stage and i get we all hold on to pieces and parts but to have most of my footing out of that stage and yet to realize there are pieces of my life that are deeply ethnocentric i've tried when when my cleveland Browns sucked for 20 years i told myself in my head like look just pick a different team and root for them until your team is good again and i couldn't You can't. When you are a sports fan, you can have other teams that you don't mind watching. And maybe you've got two favorite teams. But you can't let your favorite team not be your favorite team. It is. Even when they're bad. And so there's this level of ethnocentricity in which sports teams you root for. You know, we go to college and we're fans of our college team. And if we develop that love for the school we went to, and if we have that love, and I never had that, by the way, I'd, I went to Bowling Green State University, and even my high school, the Perkins Pirates, uh, I was never, I was never like dedicated to, to those things. It, it didn't, it didn't grab my heart the way my favorite professional sports teams do. And so it, it wasn't a big deal, but I see those people who go to a university and they just fall in love with that culture, and they are Buckeye fans, for instance, through and through. And once you develop it, it is near impossible to let that ethnocentricity go. And so here I am growing up, and there's my family, and it's we, we. And you want that. You know, like deep down in your core, you understand as a human being, to be human is to want, and need, and love your family. Those human beings are better than other human beings in terms of importance to me. My family is incredible. My family is the best. I have the best mom, the best dad. We think in those kinds of terms if our family life is at least standard. We are evolutionary designed. We're not like snakes, right? The snake hatches you know, and mom just leaves at that point. Snake's on its own. Figure it out, snake. Humans are equipped to need we. We need community. Going back to sapiens, there's this idea in there that a small band of human beings, and I've experienced this, by the way. I've got a friend group down here in Southern Utah, and I've talked about it on numerous times on the pad, on the podcast. There's 14 to maybe 18 of us now. There's some new people we've introduced to the group in the last couple of weeks. And they're just now beginning to go like, oh, okay. So now they're welcoming welcoming me into this new tribe. I get to be part of this. What does that look like? But the core of it, you know, it started off with four and then there were six. Then there were 10. And there were 12. and Then there were 14. And now we're somewhere between 14 and 18. These human beings have learned on an intimate level to love and to trust each other. Like these people are willing to be vulnerable. They're willing to be authentic. And they just know like, wait a minute, we as a collective group are really good human beings and we're really doing this human thing pretty well. And so let's just love each other and trust each other And in in response to that, let's be authentic and let's be vulnerable. And it works so good. And as we talk, as, as me and some of the other members of the group have conversations around how big do we make this group, we are conscious of the dynamic of a group can only be so big and maintain that level of intimacy and trust that level of vulnerability and authenticity and i already sense as we get to 16 and 18 we are beginning to push the bounds of that and i can feel it and what yuval harari argues in sapiens what he what he presents in sapiens and again i would i would recommend that book to everyone is that in a small enough group you can do that you can have it be so trustworthy so solid that people can be themselves, but you reach a point, and I'm, I'm going to just throw a number out. Let's say 25 people. Once you reach 25 people, you cannot maintain that level of trust anymore. You The group is so big that it is having experiences outside of your experience as part of the group, you as a member of it, to the point where you no longer have such awareness of what everyone is doing and how they're living their lives that you can no longer place implicit or explicit trust in them. And so now you have to trust another mechanism. And Yuval Harari argues that that mechanism is gossip. That human beings, once they get to a certain size, they operate on gossip. Gossip is the binding mechanism. Gossip is the binding mechanism that keeps these people together. And as I think about my family, this becomes so obvious. Like, I didn't need to gossip about my mom and my dad or my brother. I knew my mom and dad and my brother intimately. I knew my mom and dad and my brother to the point where I was just living life right next to them. And and in a way, I was kidding myself because my mom and dad went off to work and they had their separate lives there. My mom and dad went off to adult functions and my mom and dad had their separate lives there. But in my brain, the group was so small that I was able to assume safely in my head, like not that it was really safe, but I assumed it was safe. It felt safe to assume that I knew my mom and dad. I knew my brother. I didn't need to gossip about them to keep that group cohesive. But when it came to my aunts and my uncles, my grandma, my grandpa, my cousins, you could see the gossip work. You could see that gossip was how we knew what others were doing outside of our own experience. And then we could decide what level of trust and vulnerability we would place in them. And so anytime there's a small group, they can operate on connectedness and intimacy and vulnerability. And then it gets too big, and now it needs gossip. And Yuval Harari argues that gossip works from about 25 people, and that's my number, but he says at a certain point, up to about 150, 150 people. Gossip is the binding mechanism that allows 25 to 150 individuals to know each other well enough so as to decide the right amount of trust to place in each other so that they can cooperate together, so that humans can survive. And so as I got older, so I had my family, my immediate family who I just knew intimately. I had my my further out family, uncles and aunts, cousins, grandmas and grandpas, where gossip was the binding mechanism. And on, I lived on a dead-end street in Sandusky, Ohio. Oakland Ave, by the way, is the name of it. Uh, if you want to see the original house I lived in, it's for sale right now, by the way, so you can look up 306-306-Oakland Avenue, Sandusky, Ohio, 44870. Small little two-bedroom house, little tiny dining room, one bath, tiny kitchen. I'm guessing there was probably seven or 800 square feet. and And again, that's all relative. Stick a house like that in some places in the world and people would be the the rich people on the Hill. So everything is relative. And we lived in this, this house on Oakland Ave and it was a dead end street. And on one end of the street was the Erie County fairgrounds. I lived, I was like the third from the third house from the end. And I could just walk right into the Erie County fairgrounds with about a 10 minute walk through a field. And in this field, we played baseball, we played football. We, uh, again, as a, we were a sports oriented family and all of my cousins, my uncles, me, my dad, big into sports. I played baseball growing up. I played uh, like weekend backyard football. Our, our neighborhood kids and myself and some of our dads, including mine, would go play basketball together and play baseball together. Again, just the most incredible childhood. It's, it's sad a little bit that you can't go back You can't go back and do those things. Like it's a memory, but it's also gone. If I could do anything again, I would love to live my life over again, just the way it's happened. I really wouldn't like think deeply about changing much, just the way it's happened. But I'd love to live those experiences again. And as I grew up on Oakland Ave, I had an uncle and an aunt and two cousins live like five houses down from me. I literally could walk out my front door, throw a rock, and hit their house. And this cousin, my cousin Richie, same age as me, and we just grew up together. We were just like best friends. We loved each other. We hung out all the time together. And my cousin Richie, his mom and dad, my uncle and my aunt, got divorced. And so my uncle, my dad's brother, stayed in the house, and my aunt moved away. And so now my cousin Richie only came for the weekends, and during the week, he went to a different school system, and in going to a different school system, he made friends. And one of those friends was a kid named Carlos. And so, me and Richie and Carlos, Carlos and Richie, uh, Richie made it so that Carlos got to know me. And as Carlos got to know me, the three of us became best friends, best friends. And and if you've ever had best friends growing up, you don't need gossip. You know each other so well, so intimately, that you don't need to second guess what the other person's thinking. You don't need to second guess what the other person, how they feel about you. They've got your back and you've got theirs. And I had tons of experiences with the two of them. And I was a troublemaker. Again, I started drinking when I was 12. I started using uh, marijuana when I was 14. By 16, I'm selling drugs a little bit. And these are the two that I'm hanging out with all the time. I want to be around these two and they want to be around me. We have each other's back. And it's we. So there's we, my family, and there's we, my cousin and my best friend who are my best friends. It's we. And I've got other friends on this street and and when we're hanging out, it's we. Us humans, we want community. We want a tribe. And then I'm 17 years old, and I meet this girl, and we start dating, and I just like her a lot. And her father introduces me to Mormonism, and I take the discussions, and I go to church, and I meet these people, and these people, and I, and I don't get it in the moment. I don't understand all these concepts. I don't get it in the moment that they are, they are reaching out in what looks like pure love, but in some ways is deeply tied to the ethnocentric need to bring people into your tribe and the tribal requirement that every member be a missionary. Like the way I signal as a Mormon to other Mormons that I'm doing Mormonism the Mormon way is by working to bring other people into Mormonism. I can signal to you that I'm being a good Mormon, by trying to bring others into our fold. And, and you don't get that concept when you're 17 years old and you're fascinated with Mormonism and the love and concern feels real. And some of it is. Don't, don't paint what I'm saying as being an all or nothing. It never is. But I, but I didn't gather like, oh, they're just doing their job. And some of them are, are taking extra care and concern, but they're doing their job. And they're signaling to each other that they're doing their job. So I join Mormonism as a 17-year-old. I get baptized. And I'm welcomed into this community. I'd never had this kind of a community before because I was never religious. My parents weren't religious. My mom's not religious. My dad's not religious. My aunts and uncles that I was close to were not religious. My cousin that I hung out with was not religious. My best friend wasn't religious and so this was this new thing and it was this new kind of community and we had an average attendance of about 115 and i could sense looking back now and even then in some way not fully cognizant of it that gossip that the group had gotten too big for intimate knowing to be the only tool that worked And I think intimate knowing works pretty darn well, again, in that 25 to 150 range. But our average attendance in this ward was about 120. And with the attendance being 120, it became understandable, like, oh, we are pushing. Now, again, here, now looking back, it became understandable that, look, they're pushing the limits of the size of the group, some people who'd make the effort to know everybody in attendance, right? Like I was one of those. I could tell you every person who was there. I could tell you their name. I could tell you what their relationship status was. I could tell you the name of the person they're married to. If they were married, I could tell you the name of their children. I could tell you what they did for a living. I could tell you what their calling was. I could tell you about what was going on in their life. That was challenging because I knew these people So I didn't need gossip because the group was the right size where I didn't need it. But other members of the fold didn't make the same effort to know everybody. And you could see gossip becomes their mechanism. Gossip becomes the mechanism by which we know the members of our tribe. And so there's we, and we shows up to help people move. And we takes people dinner plates with food on them casseroles or crockpot meals, whatever it is, for the member of the ward who just gave birth to a child. And when someone needed something, we showed up. And we valued we. We loved we. We needed this system. We needed this tribe. And it felt so good to be part of this tribe. It felt so good to be Mormon. It felt amazing. It worked so damn well. And so this ward, this This congregation, it operates at this level of gossip, because it's over the number of 25. Not everybody knows everybody intimately. And so gossip is the mechanism that binds this community together. But it's more than that, too, because once you reach 150, because we are part of a quote unquote global church, to some extent, not as much as... leadership of that church would like to portray, but it is a big church. Even if it's not 16 million or 12 million as it was maybe back then, it is millions of people. And those millions of people, I can't know them. I don't know them. I don't even know their name. I don't know anything about them. So if I'm somewhere else and I bump into a Mormon I don't have any level of intimacy and I don't know their experience well enough to gossip about them or to have heard gossip about them. So there's no way for us to make judgments about these people. And so in the book Sapiens, Yuval Harari, he makes the argument that once you reach 150 people of your inside your tribe, gossip is no longer sufficient. Gossip no longer does the trick. Up to about 25, we're intimately aware of each other. We can trust. 25 to 150, gossip becomes an added mechanism that builds intimacy and trust in the tribe to know each other so that we can survive together, so we can get things done. And at 150, we need something else. And Yuval Harari says that that is myth. At 150 people, We no longer can know each other well enough that now what we need is a common story. Hey, we are Americans. Hey, we are Ohioans. Hey, we are Mormons. And to be Mormon, we tell a story about ourselves. Here's what we believe. Here are our mythical stories that we take as literally true. Here is how we Mormons treat each other. Here's how we Mormons treat outsiders in the world. Here's how we Mormons do Mormonism. And so when you meet another Mormon that you don't know, myth provides you the background for you to go like, Oh yeah, you're like me. And I can trust you because you believe what I believe and you behave like I behave. And then we signal to each other. It's called costly signaling. We signal to each other that we are trustworthy inside that myth story. So when I see another Mormon and I sense like, oh, they don't drink coffee either. Oh, look, they have their garments on. Oh, look, they told me they got married in the temple. Oh, look, they just mentioned that they still have to get their home teaching done this month. It signals the price that we each have paid in order to belong to this tribe. And so these mythical stories, and they happen everywhere, Hindus have mythical stories. It's what makes a Hindu a Hindu, is they live inside this myth. Now some Hindus may be literal, and some may not, but the job of the myth works on whatever level it works. And so for instance, to be an American... When the Twin Towers were attacked, when the Trade Towers were attacked on 9-11, we all sensed what it meant, and we're Americans. And so us Americans, this is what we need to do. Like, myth gives us a way, and it's just a myth. What does it mean to be an American? There is an arbitrary boundary around pieces of land. And if you are on this side of the land and you have a piece of paper that says you were here legally, you're one of us. And if you're on the other side of the line, or you're inside this country without the legal papers, you're not one of us. They're all arbitrary constructs. And once you see it, the world has created itself over the course of a million years with so many arbitrary constructs. We built this world the way we did, but we could have built it differently. We could do human a different way. This was the way that evolution deemed us to do it. But if you change 10 things a million years ago, it would do it differently. And I don't know that we sense that. Everything about how we do human is generally arbitrary constructs and boundaries and rules but you can do human differently. We could have collectively done human differently. And so myth serves the purpose of binding any tribe together at 150 people or more. And so Mormons across the globe buy into a myth. And that myth gives us ways to trust each other as we encounter each other and as we try to work with each other and as we try to sense how vulnerable we can be with each other myth gives us the ability to know another person that we don't know. And it's how the world works. It's how the world cooperates. When you work for a company, you work for a myth. I work for family pawn. These are the other employees of family pawn, family pawn. This is how we operate. This is our story This is the rules and the boundaries of this myth. This is how we do things. And it allows me to see a new employee and to say like, hey, you're now a member of Family Pond. Here's how we're going to do this thing. And I can expect my fellow employees to operate within those rules and boundaries. Hence, when a transaction occurs, I can assume how my employee One of these other employees is going to interact, how they're going to act in this situation, because they've been trained to operate within the myth of family pawn. Myth is how the world at large cooperates with each other and knows what to expect from each other. It's what makes Mormonism work. It's what makes the Baptist Church work. It's what makes Jehovah's Witnesses work. It's what makes uh, Apple as a company work. It's what makes Procter and Gamble work. It's what makes Mexico work. Everybody has myth. Everybody has rules and boundaries. And now we know what to expect from each other and what to assume about how each other feels. It's why it's so fracturing when somebody inside that myth says, I don't want to do it that way. When somebody does the tribe differently And we go like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not how we do things here. Because we've established the rules and boundaries of how we operate inside these myths. Even if we don't know their myths while we're operating inside them. When I joined the church, my first calling, like within a week of joining the church, I am extended a calling as an assistant ward mission leader. I get to work with the missionaries. And I'm thinking like, yes, this is is my new we. There's me and the word mission leader, and there's these missionaries, and our job is to convert the world, and we are on the same team. Let's go out and get some work done. One, two, three, break. And so it feels so good to be part of this team that does something. And then there's this larger ward that I'm getting to know as I join the church, right? I don't know these people yet, and some of them are loving me to death, and some of them are just more distant and I'm trying to figure out, like, who are the good people, like, who are the really good people here? And they're the ones who are loving me and giving me attention. And, and my next calling is I'm a secretary in the elders quorum presidency. I move right from one to the other. And then I move from there to being second counselor in the elders quorum presidency. And then I move from there to being first counselor in the elders quorum, elders quorum presidency. Then I move from there to being uh, a first or second counselor in the young, young men's presidency. And then within about two or three months, I'm called in to be a counselor in the bishopric. I'm 27 years old. I'm doing this Mormon thing so damn well. I know the history. I'm, I'm one of the, the more informed members of this ward in terms of reading and having knowledge. I'm, I'm showing up at the moves. I'm showing up at any project. I'm going to the church farm to plant strawberries and to pick apples. If there's a need, I want to be part of this tribe and I want to do Mormonism right and I want to signal to the other members that I'm doing this thing well. I want them to see that I'm being a good Mormon and I move from leadership position to leadership position to leadership position. And at 29 years old, I'm called in, the stake president sits down with me and extends to me the calling to be bishop of the ward. And now there's, there's the we and it's and I sense I am here to lead the we. I'm I'm I am the at the head of this we, I'm the head of this group. And I don't mean that arrogantly. I'm talking tribalism. I'm talking ethnocentricity. Every tribe has a leader. And I realize that if we if we draw boundaries around the we of our ward, I'm the leader. And then there's a larger tribe too, right? There's the stake. And I sense the stake president is the leader of that entire big tribe. It's like being a captain of 50 and captains of 150, captains of thousands. We sense as human beings that we need hierarchies. We need people to lead and we need people to follow. And we need middle management somewhere in the middle to help relay the message from the top to the bottom and see that things get done. That's how we do we. In a tribe. And it happens in a family too, right? There's a grandpa, he's the patriarch of the family. Grandma's the matriarch, and now she's got her kids, and then the grandkids. And yet at the same time, dad is dad to these kids, and someday he'll be grandpa to their grandchildren. And we put in our mind these identities. And if we go to Eckhart Tolle, there's this idea that the ego is always playing with forms and labels and associating its identity to the forms and labels. And we'll get to this in a minute, but all of it is myth. Someone's a leader because we assign them as a leader. Someone likes the Cleveland Browns because they were born in Ohio. They were born in a family that liked football. They were born in a family that rooted for the Cleveland Browns. So we associate and identify. We're always looking to fit in. And in fitting in, we're always trying to figure out what our identity is. And so I'm bishop of this ward, and I serve them as their leader and love them. And I sense now that there's this we, and I lead the we. And at some point, things fall apart. And when they fall apart, I suddenly don't fit in this we the way I used to. You see, things are always changing. We like to think things will stay just as they are and yet the lesson of life is things are always changing, always changing. Things change. That's the only constant. And when my faith crisis happens, when, I, when all of a sudden, like I just wake up one day and you just, you, it's like a it's new thing. You don't fit. You don't fit like you used to. This we has boundaries. This we has rules. And you now look different in a way that you don't fit cleanly in this tribe. And so now you're having to fight. Like, wait a minute. I still want to be part of we. And everyone is signaling to me that it's not working. This tribe doesn't have space for me to do human this way. At least not comfortably. And so now I'm sensing I'm finding myself more and more on the outside of we fighting to fit in but fighting to be authentic you see earlier stages of life we need to belong to the tribe so bad that we are willing to fit in fitting in means i have to try to be something different than i am i have to present to you a version of myself that isn't real so that you will accept me, and I can be accepted into this tribe. At earlier stages of life, we sacrifice our authenticity in order to be part of a tribe. We sacrifice our authenticity, and we go through the mechanism of fitting in. I need to walk like them. I need to talk like them. I need to dress like them. I need to do the things they do. And at some point in our life, fitting in no longer works. It hurts too much. And so we see, like, oh, it's important to be authentic. I need to be authentic. I need to be me. I don't want to be accepted for a false version of myself. I want to be me and I hope I'm accepted for being me, but I'm going to be me nonetheless. And so what happens is that we now say like, I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be more of myself and we're never fully authentic. Don't, don't misunderstand me. We're always hiding some part of ourselves, but it gets to the point where we have to expose and show more of ourselves ourselves even if that means we are no longer accepted. And Mormonism is a high-demand fundamentalist religion. You must fit in a box if you want to fit inside this tribe. Very few people in the church get to be authentic and are fully accepted in the tribe. So we decide to be more authentic And that creates more tension. It creates more of a rub. There's friction there. There's abrasion there. And over time, we keep claiming more of our authenticity and we keep sensing we are further and further towards the outside of the tribe. We are being marginalized. By being ourselves and not fitting in and being pointed at as something that doesn't fit in the tribe... It's marginalization that happens. And so eventually the fracture grows too big and we leave our tribe. We walk away. In December of 2017, I rolled over one morning in bed on a Sunday and I said, babe, I can't do it anymore. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this Mormon thing. I'm done going. The week before, I was an active Mormon. Temple recommend holding Mormon. Certainly not at peace. I was deeply fractured and hurting over my effort to be authentic and belong. Because I no longer wanted to fit in. And it wasn't working. And I rolled over and said, babe, I cannot do this anymore. I'm done doing this Mormon thing. And so in December of 2017, our family went inactive. Because my wife was already there. And my kids were already there. And what, what was keeping us holding on was me. I still wanted to be Mormon. I couldn't let it go. It had changed my life. It picked me up as a 17-year-old. And it had given me a place to fit in in the world. It had given me a place to be valued. It gave me a place to develop my gifts and my talents. It was the most awesome tribe for the first 10 years, and maybe a little more. And then little by little, I grew and I developed. I I took on an awareness that I hadn't had before. I took on compassion towards those who were different than me. And all of that together, and the growth in each of those areas, little by little, caused me to fit in less and less. I stopped belonging, and it took more and more effort to fit in. And as I claimed my authenticity, it fractured. And so our family stopped going. We were no longer Latter-day Saints. And as I raised a voice to my former tribe and said, Look, what you're doing isn't healthy. Every tribe has rules and boundaries. That in order to be a member of this tribe, you have to stay cleanly in. And one of the rules and boundaries of Mormonism is, you are not allowed to expose our leaders as less than what they claim to be. You're not allowed to do that. That rule is both said and unsaid. You are not free to expose our tribe's myths as not what we claim them to be. And you certainly cannot expose our leaders. As not being what they claimed to be. And with that, my tribe excommunicated me. But I really wasn't in the tribe anymore anyway. I wanted to be, but I could no longer sacrifice my authenticity. I now needed the tribe to change. The only way I could go back at that point was if the tribe changed to welcome my authenticity. And it wasn't going to do that. And so there was no other choice on the table but to excommunicate me. And so now I'm out. And as I'm out, I still, because I'm human, humans want community. And so at that point, I start to reach out to other ex-Mormons. People who I sense are trustworthy and good. Who I sense are doing this journey with integrity. And so, me and my wife and our best friends, Chris and Dawn, we reach out to where, you know, we are already hanging out, the four of us, with other people, but kind of on the periphery. And as we're doing this, we start to realize, like, oh, we can all see where this is going in terms of we're all like, because they were still attending, we can sense, like, oh, you can't be you and know these things, and care about these people, this tribe won't let you stay if you do that. And so with me out and them in, but all of us sensing like we can't do it this way, we start to reach out to others. And it's at this point that we that uh, the four of us reach out to Mikkel and Kelsey. And you've heard their story. If you've listened to this podcast, you've heard their story where they were interviewed uh, by me. I interview Mikkel in part one. I interview Kelsey in part two. And I sit down with the two of them in part three. And so we welcome them into this new tribe. And now there's six of us. And then there are others who are just kind of on the periphery who we, we enjoy the company of. And we're hanging out with. And so suddenly we, we say, look, we want to create a new group that's bigger that replaces Mormonism and what it gave us and maybe even gives us something more. And so we reach out to other couples and suddenly there's eight of us and then 10 of us and then 12 of us and then 14 of us. And what I've learned, what I've come to know as I've been at parties or gatherings or get togethers, as we've gotten together to support each other in hard moments, as we've gotten together to enjoy good times. I sit back as an observer and I love, I love psychology. I love human behavior. I love watching how our minds work. I love watching how our behaviors work. And as I sit back in a room and I watch these human beings, these human beings, they are wanting so badly to belong. Like how much of myself can I be and you still accept me? So I'm going to edge into it here. Here I am. I'm going to show you a little more. I'm going to reveal a little more about myself and I'm going to see how much you are willing to let me show and you still let me be part of this tribe. And so rather than learning how much of myself I have to manipulate And present something different, other than I am, in order to fit in. These people are exposing more and more of themselves to see how much they can show and be accepted. That's the difference of fitting in versus belonging. And so, human beings want connection, they want intimacy. And I don't say that. I've used that term over and over. I don't say that in terms of sexuality. What I'm talking about is these people want to expose their full selves. And they want connection. They want to be able to to hold the hand of another person. They want to be able to tell other human beings like, here are my shadows. Here are the things I'm not doing well. And I've never let you see those things. But this is it. And these are the things that make me different. And others in my world have called me weird for having these different things that I do differently than you do, human. I do human different than you do. Can I tell you those differences? Will you shame me for those? All humans want is to expose themselves and belong. And as I sit with these 14 people, I'm watching them. I'm watching them lean into exposing more and more of themselves. And every step of the way, the group goes, keep going, keep going, show me more. We can handle it. Show me more. And it becomes the most beautiful thing in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. This new tribe still has rules and boundaries. In fact, the rules and the boundaries are there, but they maybe even work in the opposite, right? Like if you are somebody who we can tell is still hiding a lot of themselves, then we're probably not too interested in you you probably aren't going to be able to be in the club. You probably can't be in this tribe. This tribe requires you to lean into authenticity and vulnerability. If you can't do that, you probably can't be here. And so I was at a party last week. And these are good people. And these people are all sitting on couches and they're talking with each other. They're holding each other's hands. They've got arms around each other. They're connecting in the most beautiful way and it takes me back it takes me back as i sit and i watch that i've had experiences in the last couple of years that have helped me grasp deeply how us humans created rituals how we created myths and i and i recognize that if we go back in time if we just go a million years back and please understand i'm not naive I understand that Homo erectus or Homo sapien or Cro-Magnon man, like what the timeline looks like. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of years, not millions of years. But I'm I'm trying to speak in this kind of language so that you can allow your brain to cover a wider expanse of space and time. If you go back in time to Cro-Magnon man, whatever it was early on, Something that, that is the common ancestor of both the monkeys and the humans. When you sense that these, these humanoids, as they are in small little groups, and they have this intimacy and trust of each other. And as humans now, you fast forward to today and you walk into New York City and you see all the crazy busyness humans are craving Deep in their evolutionary DNA, humans are craving to get back to that space, both in their own life when they had family and they had that level of just knowing each other and being able to put your arms around somebody and hug them without having to be weird about it, to be able to hold your your mom's hand or your dad's hand and not having to even think twice about like, hey, is that okay? Am I allowed to do that? and to go back in time to where we were way back then when we enjoyed that level of community. And as I sit and I watch humans interact with each other, you can see them craving that level of connection, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy. And again, I'm not talking sexuality, people. I'm talking like to sit in the same space with somebody And to be vulnerable with them in terms of your life, the words that come out of your mouth, the things that go on in your brain, and then to find these people that are willing to be vulnerable with you. And it just makes you love them. And so you sit in, you sit in these rooms and you watch these 14 people just love each other, just love each other. I had an epiphany a couple days ago. I'm sitting uh, with my wife And I'm involved in a text message to a friend, a new friend, a friend that just for the first time got introduced to this group. And this friend is trying to communicate their vulnerability with me. Like, Hey, just so you know, um, I I do human a little differently and I'm not sure how safe. Now, again, the messages don't say this, but the moment you understand this is what's happening, because you see it in yourself. When you meet somebody new and you're talking to them, there's this dance that happens. And you're like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna tell them this thing and we'll see how they handle that. And if they handle that, then maybe I'll feel safe exposing this other thing that I feel is deeper and I, I worry that maybe there's shame attached to it. And so we do this dance. And I'm watching this person who's saying like, um. Hey, just so you know, uh, I have a lot of trouble with f- maintaining friendships uh, and it's for this reason. And as they share, you can see them every step of the way, second guessing what they're saying. Like, oh, I said that. Oh, and by the way, the reason I said that was this. Oh, and is, is it okay that I said that? Like if they're checking in, they're exposing and they're checking in and they're exposing and they're checking in and they're making sure that me on the other side, that I'm interpreting this stuff in a way that still allows them to be acceptable. And the moment it doesn't be, it's not acceptable. They're going to start to try and fit in rather than belong. They're going to go, Oh, I didn't mean that oh I didn't want it to be taken that way. Uh-oh, I want to take that back off the table. And once you see humans doing that, because I see it in myself, when I'm in a conversation with a new person who I don't trust, but I want to trust, and I want them to be part of our group, and I want to be part of their group, like, there's this dance. And I see it now. Like, I watch it happen, and I see the dance. I see the dance In terms of physical connection, I see the dance in terms of emotional connection. I see the dance in terms of how we expose our thought processes. I see the dance in terms of exposing our shadows. We are all doing the dance. And I always saw it in myself as I was doing it. And then suddenly this epiphany is that, whoa, wait a minute. Everybody's doing it. Everybody in every conversation is doing the dance. And once I see it, I now read this person's messages with brand new eyes. I just see them struggling to decide how much they have to fit in and how much they can just be themselves and belong. And I just want people to be vulnerable and authentic. And now that I see it, it makes it easier to take my ego and I don't mean ego, maybe the way you are you as a listener are understanding it. You're you're not gonna grasp this unless you start reading some of these deeper um books or podcasts or articles on this. But ego is anything that labels with form, anything that identifies with form. And as I take my ego and I just set it off to the side, all I see is another consciousness trying to dance the, the dance of How much do I need to fit in and how much can I be myself and just belong? And all I want to do now is help every human I interact with feel safe, as safe as they're willing to let themselves feel, to help them feel safe just being them. Just be you. My wife says, be you, boo. Be you. That's all I want to do now. I want people to feel loved. I want people to feel safe. I want people to be vulnerable. I want people to be authentic. And I learned that every single human being is craving that space. And every human being is doing the dance, trying to figure that out. And here in Southern Utah, we are on the verge of, of figuring out how to do that. I think in the healthiest way that human beings can do. We all need community. We all need a tribe. To do that is human. It has always been human to be around other humans and to connect with them. We crave being we. And Mormonism served its purpose in its moment, but there's a much better way to do it. Until next time, this is Bill Reel from Mormon Discussion Podcast. See you then. Healed the flame, and all my love is gone. All the pain is gone, but I remain the same. Taking out my issues never.